This is Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity providing information and support for those of us living with pain and for healthcare professionals. I'm Paul Evans, and this edition's been funded by WG Edwards and Cruden Charitable Foundation. I've seen many times those tumbleweed moments when we've seen in care homes and hospitals families coming in to visit, and after they've said, how are you today, darling?, nothing comes back and that becomes a really painful, difficult time for the family members, the visitors of that person. Now, according to a 2016 survey carried out by the Alzheimer's Society, dementia is the most feared health condition in the UK and that in 2016 alone, 225,000 people will have developed dementia. So what are the implications for someone with a chronic pain condition who also has dementia? Well, Peter Passmore is Professor of Ageing and Geriatric Medicine at Queen's University Belfast. He's also consultant in old age for the Belfast Health and Social Care Trust. It's hard to avoid pain in all conditions, but in dementia, you know, there are difficulties knowing exactly whether people are in pain or not, more so as the disease progresses. It can influence so many things. I mean, we normally focus quite a lot on activities of daily living in people who have cognitive impaired and dementia. And pain can worsen that, but it can also affect their mobility. It can affect their sleep. It can affect their mood and it can cause um, behavioural problems. So the patients sit in a vast variety of, of, of locations. So people are at home. Uh, that might be the milder level of uh, dementia just after diagnosis. They can communicate probably as well as you and I. Patients may be in hospital. They say that 60, at least 60% of people in the nursing home situation have got dementia. So clearly that's a sector where we're very interested and where not so much attention may have been paid. The more confused, more behaviourally abnormal people will end up in a different kind of nursing home. Again, I think it's very important to be aware of pain there. And um, increasingly there's an interest in palliative care services uh, in relation to dementia. I think they've shied away from it before, but now they're taking much more of an interest. Certainly in Belfast, the hospice is, is very active there. It's hard enough for a person without dementia to be to make themselves understood about their pain, to describe their mm-hmm. pain. But I guess communication is one of the big issues. I wouldn't say it doesn't happen in early stage dementia, but those people have more of a memory. So I suppose this is something that you might remember from before. So if you've had something painful before, then the same thing happens. Your systems are functioning in your brain, so you can say, oh, that's a pain, and you can can describe that. I think, yes, as things progress, uh, naturally, you'd start to get worried because um, people lose their memory for what that painful experience may have been. They can't describe it. Um, And secondly, their language facilities, uh, one of the things that goes as you get a more advanced stage of certainly Alzheimer's disease. So you're absolutely right for a variety of reasons. I think you've got to have a high threshold and a high index of suspicion. And personally, I always ask people if they're in any pain. It's a routine question, even if they don't seem to be in pain. You ask people if they're in pain. Mm -hmm. Is it automatically accepted by people that if you're old, pain is a natural progression? Age means pain. You know, there is an attitude out there among old people, and certainly the studies in the literature bear that out. You know, sure, what do you expect? Sure, I'm 85. Sure, you know, I've done this, that and the other in all my life, and it's just wear and tear. There is a prevalent attitude there, and that's allied to attitudes with people maybe not wanting to take medication or, inverted commas, become addicted. 
that can be a problem. And, you know, you will get a lot of the studies, for example, that show that older people, never, you know, those without dementia are in pain. And quite a percentage of them don't take any medications. Immediately you'd look to the medical profession at not detecting and treating that. But essentially part of that is in the patient themselves, as you from your question, where they just uh, are not that happy to be on constant pain relief. Aches and pains. Yeah. What do the research papers say about how health professionals or carers at, at nursing homes, mm. how they should communicate with people with pain? Our studies certainly show that there's a couple of barriers there, that the, um, there is a difficulty with detection and people are not sure how, what they should be doing to try and detect pain. And then after that, uh, the issue would be a kind of pro forma or some sort of um, suggested regimen for managing that pain when you've got it. And of course, they also have to liaise maybe with a GP. So there are issues around that. So it's very, very important, certainly from our studies, it looks like the um, awareness, the knowledge and the training of care staff and care homes is very important uh, to try and get over these hurdles. We know well from the studies, there are several, that shows what those barriers are. That's Peter Passmore, Professor of Ageing and Geriatric Medicine at Queen's University, Belfast. Lloyd Hughes is a GP trainee working in the Royal Edinburgh Hospital in geriatric and stroke medicine. As a medical student, he worked in nursing homes as a social support officer. He co-authored the report, Managing Chronic Pain in Patients with Dementia. I think it's a very interesting area for a whole variety of reasons. You have obviously different types of patients. You'll have patients that have had chronic pain that then develop dementia. Uh, And then you also have patients who may have not had problems with dementia who then develop chronic pain and from my experience working in the nursing home as a support officer it was very always it seemed to be a very challenging experience for the GP to try and manage these patients. First of all most patients with the exception of very rare genetic dementia conditions are older and have other health problems you know lung disease kidney disease which means that some of the agents that you would think about using in pain is more limited. Secondly the kind of gold standard and everything they teach you at medical school is about history taking and clinical examination and clearly in patients with communication difficulties or cognitive difficulties it can be challenging to get an accurate history Uh, and in some forms of dementia it's actually difficult to get a good clinical examination as well. Let's start with communication. Somebody without dementia might know exactly where they've been in the past, what's happened in the past. You're starting with a blank sheet. Exactly and I think one of the, the, the joys of, of general practice is the fact that we do have access to you know, long medical histories. And I think one thing that when speaking to the GPs is that when you're going to visit a nursing home and you're going to visit certain patients is to have a bit more of a read about the background that applies to everything, including pain, and trying to get an idea of why these patients are experiencing pain is more difficult. Now, that's why caregivers and nursing staff in nursing homes are very important in in the assessment of these patients and clearly the communication difficulties in dementia is not all kind of encompassing thing there's different stages of dementia and clearly what doctors and and nursing and and, um, caregivers have to try and do is to use the communication that the patient has to the best of their abilities to support a diagnosis and I think sometimes doctors are bad at hearing a diagnosis of dementia and assuming they're not going to be able to give a history and it's somewhere kind of in the middle. Where do you start? How do you know if a person has a chronic pain condition? The easy cases are when patients have a long-term diagnosis on the system which they may have had for a prolonged period of time and have developed another disorder. The more challenging ones relate to concerns voiced by whether that's family members or 
possibly even the patient themselves about behavioural change or mobility issues, which are kind of we call vague presenting complaints, which they don't necessarily come to you and say, I've got pain in my hips or chronic issues with my knee that's been going on for you know three months. It's more of the fact that the wife may say, you know, John's not been so good on his feet in the last six months, he's not sleeping as well, he's being a bit more repetitive in some of his behaviours. And so from our perspective, and it's about trying to think what else can explain this. And sometimes it's a progression of dementia, but often there is something acute that's precipitating this, and that can often be pain or discomfort or those kind of things. We are just talking about nursing homes at the mm -hmm. moment. Firstly, going into a nursing home, it's a change of environment anyway, so mm -hmm. people will act differently. When nobody knows how this person will act in the new environment, how would you go about assessing it? That's probably the most challenging point, is, is the point of admission because patients are moving from home to a new environment and what generally will happen in this patient group is the nursing staff will do an admission and that will be a advanced care plan which will involve a whole state of getting a background of the patient, what they've done before. Then the GP will come in and review the patient. And often it's very difficult, you know, on the first meeting of the patient to say, we've got a problem here or there's suggestions of pain. But the key is really to document what the GP, what the nurse, what the caregivers have experienced and what is normal or what is the patient's baseline. And that is really important. And in, in most GP records for patients in nursing homes, there's a summary or an EKIS summary, which basically explains what the patients, when they're well in their current level of health, what that is. And really then it's about comparing that over time. And it may be that in three or four weeks things change, or it may be that that indeed is a new baseline, but it's just about having an appropriate and accurate assessment of the initial presentation, and then using that as your kind of comparison point to see what happens over time. Lloyd Hughes. If people with dementia are on medication for pain or anything else for that matter, some of those medications can have side effects such as causing confusion, drowsiness, any number of things in fact. So how do doctors establish whether those side effects are because of the medication or the dementia? Professor Peter Passmore. That's a very good question at a practical level. And you see this in practice all the time. So you have somebody in pain and you may be trying to estimate what is the nature of that pain. You know, is there a neuropathic component to it and how severe it is? So, I mean, I think for pain a lot of the time, you know, it is a best guess, and well, it's an informed guess in our case, where you go in with medication, which medication do you pick, and at what level. And if you want to manage the pain without causing the patients the untoward side effects. So in this population with dementia, you're already in a situation where the brain is compromised. So what happens is the more pain you have, the more delirium you get. You're more confused anyway. So that's a problem with the pain itself, and that will affect the level of confusion uh, that the patient and, and, and also the, the care will feel this, you know, as well. So the difficulty you have, say, I suppose, is if you try to go with the likes of amitriptyline is very commonly used, certainly in primary care. Um, if there's a neuropathic component, pregabalin is commonly used. And then if the pain is more severe, you have to reach for the opioids. And I suppose the issue with all three of those medications, well, amitriptyline on its own can cause more confusion as a tricyclic antidepressant with its anticholinergic effects. Opioids also have anticholinergic effects. So, you, you know, if you have to use those together, there's a combined effect on top of what medication, as you said, people may already be taking. 
Pregabalin can also be associated even in lower doses in vulnerable old people um, with more confusion. So you can see how uh, it's a two-edged sword. The pain causes more delirium and then the, the medications may cause a little bit of uh, delirium and an increased confusion there as well. So it is a balancing act. I think you do look at the person in front of you. You know, you try and make an estimate of their biological age, what weight they are roughly. Those will all influence the drug handling things. Their kidney function for opioids and for the likes of pregabalin is pretty important because that will they, those drugs are predominantly excreted through the kidneys. So if the kidney functions down, as it often is in old people, you will modulate your dose accordingly. It is a balancing act, and I think that's why people do, do need to look at the population they're dealing with and be pretty well informed about the drugs, particularly about renal function, and try and get it right. And it's easy if you can observe the patient. So in a hospital where I work, that's pretty straightforward, so that if someone seems to be becoming more confused, for example, if you've prescribed an opioid, that can be titrated back. But it's not so easy probably in uh, the community, either people at home or in a nursing home sector. So the GP might well, you know, if they prescribe and it's appropriate, I think the advice to the patient is they need to report, and the carer, of course, if, if it's more advanced dementia, they will need to report uh, back if there are any untoward problems and then the situation can be titrated. Professor Peter Passmore. Lloyd Hughes again. One of the benefits of being in a nursing home in, in, in some regards is that there's 24-hour care. And that means that clearly if you're a GP that's seeing somebody at home, you, you make an assessment based upon a clinical examination in maybe 10 to 15 minutes, maybe longer in a home visit. When you're in a nursing home, you've got different staffing rotations. You're seeing patients you know, overnight, you're seeing patients in the day, and you can get a really kind of more comprehensive, the same as caregivers when patients are at home, um, you can get a good comprehensive assessment of what patient's behaviour is over time. And that's really important because often, from my own experience, visiting patients at home they, or, or in nursing homes, they may actually be fine when you go and assess them. Um, but actually, it's the concerns voiced by nursing staff saying, actually, he's not sleeping at night. He's not comfortable in his bed. He keeps trying to go into his chair. He's not, you can't lie in flats. Those kind of things, you get a bit more information about how the patient's managing across the 24-hour period. So I think that's one of the things I learned a lot about, actually. I'm making a sort of assumption, a false assumption, that dementia means old age, mm-hmm. and it also means care in a nursing home. Even, you know, 20 years ago, the diagnosis of dementia was, that was the diagnosis, whereas now there are lots of different types of dementia, and the different types of dementia often can affect different age groups. So there's a much better understanding of vascular dementia or multi-infarct dementia, and that actually is not uncommon in patients, even, you know, where I was in Dundee in their early 60s, may may develop these types of dementia. You're quite right, because these patients are physically more healthy often they may be developing these cognitive problems there are more challenges because you can manage these patients at home they may have less other medical issues which means that you can possibly try different medications differently and actually there's some new research now that suggests that patients with vascular dementia may experience more pain than those who have alzheimer's dementia or dementia with lewy bodies because of the type of damage that happens to the brain because different dementia syndromes are a manifest of different types of pathological changes and I think there's a lot more research now looking at vascular dementia as a dementia which causes more chronic pain or actually can cause pain type symptoms or affect patients experience of pain if they do have other things going on like knee pain or osteoarthritis. So what are the challenges for people who are cared for at home rather than in a nursing environment? There's often a lot of caregiver stress, there's often a, a, a difficult dynamic between family members 
And then also you have patients that manage with, you know, mild to moderate dementia in their own homes. And then you're thinking about issues about, you know, safety, how they're managing at home. Can you provide support with CPN type follow-up if they've got behavioral issues? Are you able to get district nurses in to keep a closer eye on them? So a lot of it is that balance of paternalistic medicine where what we want to do is keep everyone safe and make sure everyone's, you know, well and but at the same time promoting independence. And it's about how do you balance promoting independence with risk and that's that's one thing I think's a big challenge. The evidence probably shows that the better you know the patient with dementia, the more able you are to say that they're likely to be in pain. As against that then you have some studies showing that actually caregivers are not too good at rating pain. That's a fairly critical thing because if the patient can't quite um, indicate for themselves, then if, if the carer isn't spotting the sick signals and, and the implication again of people know folk very, very well, so supposing they're seeing them all day, every day, and they can quite often say to a, you know, a nurse or a you know, medical practitioner, they always do that when they're in pain, so I think they're in pain. But I think the implication is when people aren't involved in that constancy level, there could be difficulties in, in recognising what is a feature of pain from a behavioural perspective. So I think we assume carers always know, but I'm, I'm just not sure the evidence bears that out. Peter Passmore, Professor of Ageing and Geriatric Medicine at Queen's University, Belfast. So from what we've heard, I think it's fair to say that an overriding issue for managing chronic pain in people with dementia is one of communication. And here I'm going to move from what the health professionals can do to open those channels of communication to what we, the loved ones, spouses, family members, those in the early stages of dementia and those of us who may or may not develop dementia in the future, can do to keep those channels open for as long as possible. Andy Lowndes is the Deputy Chair for the charity Playlist for Life. Playlist for Life is really a a simple tool which is based around identifying the unique playlist of a person's life in music and helping a person living with dementia and their family to access that playlist. Because what we've found is that by giving a person access again to the the soundtrack of their life, it's enabling them to reconnect with themselves again through the memories and emotional connections and all of the stories around that music. But the question must be asked, if you are losing your memory, why aren't you losing your music? This is the, the killer question, you know. What we've found is that many reminiscence triggers are used nowadays, you know. So we, we, in previous life, I've been involved in doing stuff around football memories and so on. And we've used visual imagery and photographs and, and so on. And, and, and that seems to stay for quite a long time. But eventually even recognising yourself in a photographic image can can disappear. But the one thing that seems to remain is our ability to to respond to music. And we don't know exactly why that is, but certainly evidence from even some of the work that we've done is that that connection to a piece of familiar music enables an emotional reaction to happen, which means that memories can be retrieved even when other forms of trigger seem to be lost. I can see why this is important for a husband and wife or a member of family. It, it opens up a communication yeah. channel, doesn't it? On a less personal level, how does this help the clinicians sort of assess who, who the person was, who the person is now? The golden thread that Playlist for Life is for us is, is it helps 
the clinician, the staff, the carers see the very unique person in front of them. There's a lot of rhetoric and policy around now about person-centeredness in care. Go and ask people what that means, and some people will find it quite difficult to explain. But when you can tell the person a bit about a unique person's life, that life story through music, that helps them to see there where the unique opportunities for different forms of care and different approaches and different communications, different interactions can occur. You know yourself that if you and I are sitting here talking just now and you're listening intently, which is great, but if a piece of your favourite playlist was to come on outside in the room out there, you couldn't listen to me anymore. Your mind would be taken to listen to that music and to the memories around that music. And that great thing about music being a distraction is something that clinicians can use as well. So when somebody will live in with dementia later in their journey is, is distressed by their experience, to inject into that familiar music which distracts them from whatever they were doing that enables the staff then to engage because they can talk together about that music makes the care experience that much better for the person with dementia but also for the staff. And we've had this reported many, many times about almost a culture change in the way that staff look after people. We've had lots of evaluation work being done in in the hospice movement and in the acute sector and in some care homes, which shows that different things are happening. So we've seen a decrease in the amount of falls that are happening. Now, that shocked us a bit at the beginning. We couldn't, but of course, that's simple. If you are looking after somebody who's less stressed and distressed, as we call it now, if you're looking after somebody who's less that way, then they're less likely to be agitated and want to get up and wander around, and therefore they fall less. Likewise, we've seen improvements in people's continence levels. What? Again? If you've got somebody who is less distressed, that they can then recognise they need to go to the toilet, they're less incontinent. They're not sitting there in a panic. They're able to get and go to the toilet or ask to be taken to the toilet. But we've seen improvements in, in people's nutritional intake because, again, people are less distressed, so they're sitting and managing to eat a meal. We use, as part of our training, what we call a personalised music assessment tool, and it was developed at Nottingham University Hospitals Trust and the Queen's Medical Centre, and they did a study which looked at the impact personalised music in an acute care setting with people with dementia. And what they saw was, was improvements in a person's ability to cooperate in their care, improvements in nutrition, less agitation, better communication, and we saw an improvement in a person's ability to either report pain or less reporting of pain because we suspect, because again somebody was more relaxed, less distressed, that they were able to say, I need some painkillers. Perhaps they were experiencing less pain because their joints were more comfortable and more relaxed. So we used either the Abbey Pain Scale or the Pain AD, Pain and Alzheimer's Disease, those scales to measure that. So we've seen improvements and things like that. Now, I've been on your website many times. We don't have to have you to come to our house to be our own musical detective. Mm. We can put our own 
playlist yeah. for life on, yeah. the, on the website. Yeah, yeah. this is part of, of what we started when we started the charity. We didn't want to create an empire of, of lots of music detectives uh, running around and with offices in every town and so on. We wanted to enable people. We wanted to give people the tools to go out and do this. So absolutely, that tool is on our website. Those trigger questions are on our website. And what we should all do is wait, not wait until we get dementia in our lives. We should go and do our playlist now. I love music too. Obviously, I do. This is one of the reasons I love doing this. But I have visited many families and many people living with dementia in their own homes. And I can remember going to one lady's house in Edinburgh who quite clearly had a playlist of her life in her house. Underneath the window, there was a huge rack of LPs and boxes of tapes and cassettes and so on sitting there. But she couldn't work the machines anymore. She couldn't listen to the music that she'd listened to all her life. And how sad is that? How sad is it that she couldn't sit in her house, put on a record or put on a tune and close her eyes and be taken on that journey that that music was part of? And that's all we're trying to do. It has many benefits for clinicians and for families, yes, absolutely. But it's simple. You could all do it. And I've done it. So could you. The Playlist for Life website is playlistforlife.org.uk and there you'll find all the information and tools to make your own Playlist for Life. Now, another trusted source of information is the Alzheimer's Society and they can be found at alzheimers.org.uk and I mentioned at the beginning of this edition of Airing Pain that according to their research, dementia is the most feared health condition in the UK. So does this explain why over half of people in their survey actually put off seeking a diagnosis for up to a year or even more. Well, I've just had my 60th birthday. I don't have dementia, but I do have a chronic pain condition. I've made my playlist for life, but what else could I do now to make sure that my pain issues are managed if I do go on to have dementia? Lloyd Hughes. That is a, you know, a very important question. I think for a whole host of physical and mental health concerns about developing dementia, I would advise advanced um, care planning. And this term is often banded around, but all it means is providing a health professional with a good background about what you experience, the challenges that you have, um, and how that changes over time. So in the example of pain, you may wish to explain to your care provider about what type of pain you experience, how frequently you get that, what type of activities bring that on, and how that affects you, and that may be in terms of sleep, it may be in terms of you know, the activities you can perform and those kind of things. And that information is really important because if you do develop cognitive deficits and, and as you get older, that, that allows health professionals to obviously try and get aspects of the history and assess you at that place in time. But it gives them an excellent kind of source of reference to say actually, this is what this patient has experienced over the last 40 years. So it's, it's reasonably unlikely that that's going to have changed a huge amount. So let's use that as a guide and how, how can we use that to try and improve our management. And I think that's particularly important as patients get older because clearly if you're on, if you've had chronic pain and you're 60 years old, you may be on medications which may well be inappropriate when you're 85. And that's not necessarily because they're inappropriate because of the type of pain, but it's inappropriate because your kidney function may decline, your liver may not work as well, and therefore the medications that work at 60 may not work and actually may cause a lot of side effects at 85. 
often the same medication is appropriate, but it just requires dose adjustments and things. So this resource of explaining what you experience, how you experience it, and what type of activities bring on these things are very important. And that refers to chronic pain, but other you know, medical things as well. So I think planning ahead, being open with your care provider, and also if you are involving other agencies, so if you go into the if you actually go into a dementia assessment service, these are all things that are really important to voice to them because there's often a brilliant letter written, whether it's psychiatry units or geriatric unit, which provide that information for you know, GPs that may see you over the you know, next kind of 10, 15 years. Lloyd Hughes, co-author of Managing Chronic Pain in Patients with Dementia. I just remind you that whilst we in Pain Concern believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you, your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. So, to finish this edition of Airing Pain, what advice would Lloyd Hughes give to someone whose family member or loved one is starting out on his or her dementia journey? Try and do what you can. And I think from my experience of working with hundreds of caregivers, I think people sometimes are really hard on themselves. They're overly concerned about what people will think about their decisions. And I think what people need to do is think about what they can do physically to support their loved one. And that may be practical things. It may be, you know, taking them to clinic appointments. It may be, you know, arranging support at home or whatever, but also what they can manage themselves. And I think managing your own health and your own mental health and your own physical health is really important because if you do that, you'll actually be able to support your loved one more effectively. And I think the other thing I'd say is don't suffer in silence. Dementia is a devastating diagnosis. It's a journey which is often quite long, challenging emotionally, physically, there are going to be periods in time in the vast majority of caregivers where they're very worried, they're particularly maybe quite down, anxious about things, worried about the future. And I'd say to those people, speak to people. And that doesn't necessarily mean to go and see your GP. I love seeing patients to talk about these things, but just being open with friends, family about your concerns, how you're managing, because talking about these things is really important because there's actually now a lot more support out there than there was you know, 20 years ago. There's, there's charitable organisations, there's befriender groups, there's dementia day centres, there's a lot more out there. And I think talking about these things may allow you to find solutions that may help you and, and, and help your loved one.